You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. I don't know about you, but these past few weeks, these past few sermons have been incredibly challenging for me personally, and I did have a few other things to say, and I, and I, I assure you I have plenty to say today, but I just wanted to go back um, to the chorus. I'm kind of pivoting just a little bit of the, of the last song that we, we sang, because um, I really think it just really sums up the whole book of Colossians, the whole theme of Colossians. And uh, the chorus is, uh, to build my life, how holy there is no other one like you. There's no one beside our God. And we just have this desire for him to show us who he is, that he would fill us with his love to share with those around us. And today we're going to see that in the aspect of our work and in our witness to our, in our communities, but I just want you to sit with that for a minute. Really, all of the songs that we sang this morning, no, no um, mistake right there that all of them had to do with who, who Christ is, how he loves us, how that should affect the way that we live our lives in every single area as we engage in each of these spheres. And so I thank God that he's not done with that work. I thank God that he's given us grace and he continues to work in our weakness. Oh, Lord, I need him to work in my weakness uh, even now. But we, today we'll see what that means for our communities. And so if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there should be some of the seatbacks in front of you or in the aisles. I encourage you to uh, be in the Word with us this morning. It's so important. And you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And so we'll continue where Pastor Ben left off. And this week we're going to be begin by talking about the concept of work. I did fail to mention, I uh, got a little distracted there, that uh, children, I'm sorry, but you're staying in here this morning, so you're going to learn, learn a little bit about what mom and dad do on a daily basis. Um, but work is not something that we often think of as a fun topic. You guys are like, John, what? that's tomorrow. I don't want to think about it today. Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit today. And, and often it's different than what we, what we anticipate or how we actually respond in our work. The reality is that all of us work in some way or another. And so how Christ impacts our work is very significant. In fact, your life is spent, roughly about one-third of your life is spent with work. That's over 90,000 hours in a lifetime. And that's just your paid work. That's your, your job or your vocation. But I wonder if you, like me, have ever had a job that you didn't necessarily care for, didn't enjoy looking forward to going to work. Maybe it made you feel something like this. Is that how you guys feel today about thinking about work tomorrow? Maybe this one. Anyone ever feel that on a, on a weekly basis? And then this last one's my favorite. I can relate. I don't know. Those are like suggested start times, right? Now, I like my current job, and all of us, but all of us have had jobs that make us question, do I have to go to work today? Man, I don't, I'm not looking forward to that. And for me, this was a summer job I had in college, working on a loading dock, pulling boxes off of a conveyor, carefully loading them onto trucks for a major snake, snack food business. 
It paid a whopping $6.50 an hour, which helped bring in some income for a poor college student. But it was a tedious job, and I wasn't exactly changing the world one potato chip at a time. But our job doesn't even have to be our vacation, right? It's not just something that we get paid to do. It's something that we're called to do. And it doesn't matter if you're a student. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of the career. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or you're retired. All of us work in some way. And there are, always, there are ways that we've been called to work. And from the beginning, we've been called to work because it's a good and it's a right thing given to us by the Lord. And so the question that we need to ask is, how should, be fo- how should being followers of Christ impact not only our work, but our witness in our communi- community? Because we can't separate the two things. Whether we're sharing the love of Christ as an employee, whether we volunteer for a Bible adventure, whether we're taking a neighbor a meal or talking to other parents in the stands at our kids' sporting events, how we walk through our community matters to the Lord. And we'll see in a little bit that this begins with our prayer. Our neighbor will know the hope we have by seeing how we live, by the words we speak, and by the actions we take. How can you take your next steps in your community? That's the question that Paul is going to address for us this morning. So here's the big idea. As you walk in Christ through the community, let him transform your work and your witness. As you walk in Christ throughout the community, let him transform your work and your witness. You know, sometimes we start to believe that Christ is only involved on on my Sunday morning. The rest of the the week is for me. But being a citizen of the kingdom impacts not only our home, it transforms our work and our witness. Now, for the first half of the series, we've looked at who Christ is. We, we did that again here this morning with our worship. We, we fixed our eyes on the supremacy of Christ, that he is above all things and in all things. But as we explore the second half, we begin to ask the question, why does that matter? Why does who Christ is matter in my day-to-day life? If Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord and King of my life, and I've been buried with him and resurrected with him. How should that change our lives? How does that impact every sphere of my life? And Pastor Ben has done an excellent job of showing how this should affect our relationships and our day-to-day spheres. What really happens when the rubber meets the road, when it begins to get a bit more personal? Has it been getting a bit more personal? I know it has for me. But before we unpack these verses, I think it's helpful to look back a few verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, which helps frame the context for our passage here this morning. And if you remember, Paul said, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I hope that's a verse you've been applying to your own heart. I know that's, that's one that's, that struck me and, and that we need to do, it's this concept that we do everything that we do for the glory and the name of Jesus Christ. And last week we saw how that plays out in the context of our families. What does that mean to be a gentle, live with gentle humility and lead in that way? And a Roman household consisted of more than relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children. They often also included servants who were part of the household. In some translations, the same word, bondservant, would be translated slave. And so it's in this final section of the household code where we're given instruction on how Christ should change the relationship between servants and masters. Now, thankfully, that 
relationship no longer exists in our household today, although maybe our kids feel like it does sometimes, right? They still think like, what am I, your slave? No. No, you're a servant. <laughs> and you'll see what I mean by that. It's not a, po- it's not a negative thing. Uh, thankfully, slavery no longer z- exists in our society as we think of it in U.S. history, but it doesn't mean that there's no application for today. And that clearest application is in the workplace, in the relationships between employees and employers, between their workers and the, and the boss. And I believe these principles from the text are still true today because they deal with those that are in authority and those who are under authority. And all of us in some way are either in a position of authority or under authority, in some cases both. And so today we're going to see how this transforms our work in our community. And so follow along with me beginning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now before we can really dive in and address the issues that face us today, we have to address the elephant in a room and answer the question, why? Why does Paul not just outright condemn slavery? Why does he instead choose to focus on these relationships? And honestly, I think it's just a really hard question to answer, but I think we have to understand the context to give us some clarity why God would have allowed this, um, this slavery to exist for a certain period of time. First, we need to have a right understanding of what slavery was like in Rome. And while it has some similarities to what our, our definition of slavery would be, it also has some differences. See, slavery played a major role in the Roman life. It was estimated that there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. One-third of the population were slaves. And so you can imagine if there was mass disruption to that socioeconomic system, how much that would just impact the culture. So slavery, but slavery was also not race-related like we think of slavery in our U.S. history. Rather, it was class-related. Slaves, in many times, were often part of the family, and many were like what we would call servants today. Over 50% of slaves would earn their freedom before the age of 30 in Rome. And also, you were not necessarily a slave for life. In fact, many people would sell themselves into slavery for a period of time because that was the fastest path to Roman citizenship. But I want to be clear. The truth is that slavery was and is always sinful. So when any person is not being given the same rights and dignity of personhood, being valued as one created in the image of God, they grieve God and ultimately will receive judgment because there is no partiality with God. And while we don't see an outright condemnation of the practice of slavery, he addresses the issue of the heart 
that always exists for those that are under authority and in authority. And there's so much we can learn from the passage that comes to our relationships at work, right? And with that historical context, we see our first instruction for those who are under authority, those who are servants in today's today's terms would be employees, those that have a boss or someone in authority over them. So if you're here and you're, you're a boss, I'm sorry, if you have a boss, then this applies to you, it applies to me. And that brings us to our first point for today. Let Christ transform the way you work. Let Christ transform the way you work. The gospel of Jesus Christ should change the way we work in two significant way, ways. It changes the quality of our work, and it changes the motivation for our work. And first we see how Christ changes the quality of our work in verse 22. Read along with me. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now this passage is not incredibly difficult to understand, but it is incredibly difficult to apply. There are two characteristics here that should stick out to those who work for the glory of Christ. The first is this, that we should work diligently. We as Christians should be the most diligent employees doing what our employer asks us to do, doing it joyfully, doing it with a servant heart, and doing it so that the work is accomplished and our employer is rewarded and blessed. That's the idea that Paul is giving us here, that we obey in what? In everything. Submit to their authority, even when you don't necessarily agree, even when you don't like what's being said or you think, well, if they did it my way, that would be so much better. See, as employees, we work for the benefit of, of another. And sometimes, and I think in our American culture, we often think about ourselves, if we're honest, what's best for me. But Christ is calling us to obey in everything. Now, obviously, that wouldn't include something uh, that would cause us to go against our, the law or our Christian principles. If your boss asks you to embezzle or to steal, no, you answer to the Lord. But this does include everything else that doesn't violate your conscience before the Lord. We're called to obedience, and I don't know about you, but that's going to require Christ in me because I can be pretty prideful. I can think, I've got this figured out. I can, I can do this on my own. But we need to ask the Lord, Lord, give me the strength that I can walk in humility and serve another for their good and their benefit. The call is for servants to obey and honor their masters in everything. What a radical principle. If slaves are being called to do this, then how much more should you and I as willing employees seek to be an employee who works diligently for the Lord? Can you imagine what it would be like if that's the way you worked, to have an employee that just worked joyfully for the Lord? That employer would be like, why are you, why are you so different? Like, there's just something different about you. And the answer is because it's Christ in me. It's not because of me. Because Jesus transforms my work, and we'll see a reason for that in a minute. The second thing he says is that we're to work sincerely. We're to work sincerely, verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And the word for sincerity here just means single devotion, to be free from deceit or deception, to have a clear purpose and a clear heart in it. And then he describes it not by way of eye service, those that look good only when the master is looking. Well, we understand that, right? The one who works when only the boss is around, maybe something like this. I think we have a slide there. If not, that's okay. 
Does your work change when the boss is standing right over your shoulder? It shouldn't, right? But it, it, if we're honest, it does in some, in some cases. It shouldn't be like, oh, you know, get my phone out and Facebook, Instagram reels. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to send that to my wife. Oh, boss, boss is here. Going away. Get back to work. No, we should be working diligently whether the boss is around or not. Whether people are watching us or not with a sincere heart but not as people pleasers, not just doing things to impress others. No, we don't work to impress others. We work for the glory of the Lord, fearing the Lord. See, it's ultimately for the Lord. That's what he says next. Our motivation to work should be different from the world around us. And so the next thing that we see in the text is how Christ changes our motivation for our work. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord. There it is again, whatever you do. To work heartily literally means to work from your soul, as for the Lord and not for men. How different would it look if we realized this first motivation? If we would work for the Lord, if it was for his glory and for his name and everything that we did. And yet, work is not to be our God. It's, it's not to drive who we are. It's not to be the sense of where we find our worth and our value. No, our identity is in Jesus Christ and our identity in Jesus. We can be the best employees because we're working unto the Lord. How different would it look tomorrow if you went to your job and realized that what I do this morning with my time, with my energy, the way I treat those around me, how I treat my boss, how I value what we do as a company, that this is my mission field. This is where I can be an impact for Christ. This is where the Lord has called me to for the next Eight plus hours. Some of you work many more than eight, eight hours a day. I understand that. But that's good work. It should change how we work. And notice he's, he's talking to servants and slaves, and he's saying, listen, your work matters. It, value, it has value to the Lord. Believer, it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter how significantly or insignificantly the world views it. It's the work he has called you to. And so we're motivated by the work we do for the Lord and by the second motivation that we work for the Lord's kingdom. We don't live for this earth. Oh, how the past few weeks have realigned my perspective on that. Ultimately, we work for, the, for God's kingdom, that it would be ex- expanded and he would receive glory. And you might not think that your job is meaningful. But that's exactly what the Lord says here. He says, you will receive an inheritance as your reward for faithfulness and glorifying Jesus Christ in whatever he's called you to do. Now just ma- imagine listening to that from someone who was in the position of a servant or a slave. They had no right of inheritance. You can imagine from an earthly standpoint how disheartening that would be, how they would just lead to ultimate despair, that they had no purpose. I have no meaning in my life. All I do is serve another. And yet, he says, you will receive an inheritance, and it will be given to you by the Lord. And it's not just that we work for the reward. No, we labor for a better kingdom. That includes how we parent. That includes how we live out our marriages. That includes how we work. So friends, I ask you this morning, what do you work for? Do you work for the paycheck? 
do you work that you can reach a comfortable retirement? No, if you're retired, I would challenge you. He's freed your time to be able to use your gifts for his glory and his name. You have a great opportunity to equip the next generation to bring glory to the king. His kingdom should be our motivation in all that we do. But we don't just have instruction for those who are under authority. We also see an even more radical instruction for those that were in a position of authority, the masters in this text. Remember, the congregation in Colossians was made up both of slaves and masters. In fact, it was Tychicus who brought this letter to the church in Colossae. He was accompanied by a runaway slave of Philemon named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus had fled Colossae for Rome, and he later came to faith under Paul's teaching while in prison. And so Paul wrote another letter to Philemon that urged him to recognize and welcome, welcome Onesimus back home. And he said, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a dearly beloved brother. And so next we see instruction to those in authority, instruction to those that are, in a, that are an employer or a boss and who have people that report to you. This instruction is for us. And here we see that even though we've been given authority for a moment, we can't lose sight that we will give an account to the Lord for how we treated those under us. See verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You've been given a blessing of authority to bless them, not to serve yourself. How radically different would it be if those in power would use their power to help and care for those under them? He gets even more direct in the next verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Listen to what he says next. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Here he's addressing both the quality and motivation of their leadership. First we see how Christ changes the quality of our leadership. There are two characteristics really that stick out to me from the text for those that are in a position of authority. And we should lead justly and fairly. Now this instruction is being given to those that literally had the power of life and death over their servants. To treat those under you justly means that we should treat them as Christ would treat them, that you would serve people in the way that Christ would serve them, and that you treat them with fairly, or fair, fairness, with equity and justice. The general idea here is that you would treat them as if they were created in the image of God, because that's exactly who they are. And as an employer, as a boss, you will give an account of how you use your power. We just read that, right? Here this meant, in this context, that masters should treat their servants as members of their own family, that they would bring them into their homes, that they would feed them, that they would care for them, that they would not make unreasonable demands of them, and they would give them their freedom when appropriate. And this is what it looked like in this context, but the principles are just the same today, that we would treat people with justice and fairness and equity. Look, if you're a boss, you should be kind and patient. If you have the ability to pay your workers, you should pay them well. They should love to work for you because of how you bless them. You should look for ways to help care for them and help them grow in their skills and their abilities. And if you're this kind of employer first, I guarantee everyone will want to work for you. And second, people will wonder, why are you so different? Why are you not out to make a buck like everyone else? Because Christ is my greatest glory. Because 
I want to worship the Lord with my responsibility that he's given me. So you're, use your power for good, their good, and your, their benefit. And look always for ways that you can glorify God through your leadership. So then how does Christ change that motivation for our leadership? Well, we lead to honor Christ. If he, he's given you a position of leadership, he's given it to you for one reason, and that's to honor Christ. And that, so that should be our motivation. Notice what he says next, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, whatever leadership you've been given, it's a delegated leadership from the Lord so that you might honor him with it. What does a Christian boss look like? Well, there's, there's a hundred things that we could say about this, but let me just give you a few. If you're a boss or in a position of authority, you should lead through serving, not by having people serve you. You should be the greatest servant leader in your company. You should be humble as a leader, and you should lead with integrity and honesty. People should trust your word in what you say as you care for them, as you protect them, that you would be patient and respectful and kind, not greedy, but rather generous as the Lord has been generous with you. And ultimately, all you need to do is look to Christ. You need to ask, how would Christ lead these people that he's called me to lead? And that should be our model. So your work matters. My work matters. Whether you're an employee or a boss, ultimately you work for one Lord and Master, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's given you the work that he's called you to. He's equipped you for that work, and ultimately you and I will give an account to the Lord for what we did with that work that he's given us. Did we use our workplaces as a mission field? Not aggressively proselytizing to people while we should be working. No, but rather by being representatives of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, by being a blessing to others and being the best worker we can be. Our witness spreads far beyond just our workplace. It extends to all of those spheres of influence that includes being a good neighbor. And that might be your next-door neighbor, but really what he's saying here is that this is anyone within your sphere of uh, influence. And these principles apply both inside and outside the workplace to anyone within your community. Here we see Paul gives some further instruction that I would suggest applies to all our relationships. And it's motivated by what we read in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, when we have this kingdom mindset, it can't help but affect our witness. So let Jesus transform your witness. That's our second point for today. Let Jesus, transform your witness. Continue reading chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also that God might open doors for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer. See, the first area that we want to be transformed is in our prayer. Christ changes the way that we pray. And the more that we love Christ and the more that we are completely captivated by him, the more our walk will reflect a dependence on prayer. 
Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The expectation here is that we're already praying. We're just continuing to pray. And he wants us to continue steadfastly. The context for this command comes from chapter 3, encouraging believers that we're to live a life of thankfulness in light of who Christ is. And so we go back to where we began this morning. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. One of these things that should be transformed in our life is this call to prayer, and he's calling us to pray continually, steadfastly. Now, it's not the only place in Scripture, right, where we're called and reminded about the significance and the importance of prayer. It's everywhere you look in the New Testament that those that are dependent upon the Lord go to him often in prayer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Prayer should be the mark of our lives as followers of Christ. In Romans 12, 12, he encouraged the church to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. This is the mark of a life that truly believes that Jesus is better, that truly believes that we are dependent upon the Lord. And even Jesus himself modeled and taught this over and over again, the significance of prayer. One of the most significant Uh, examples that we see is in Matthew 26 where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's enduring the most intense aspect of his ministry where he's about to go to the cross but before he has to endure that he goes to the Lord in prayer and asks the disciples to pray with him listen if Jesus needed to pray how much more do I and do you need to pray and connect ourselves with the Father and the Son and through the Spirit so that we can walk in the strength the Lord has given us to accomplish what he's called us to do. See, prayer is vital to our growth and effectiveness because it connects us to Christ. In John 15, 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Prayer is not something that we do to try to act and be like a better Christian. Prayer is how we connect to our Lord and Savior. It's how we abide in Christ. And through prayer, we demonstrate that daily dependence. And yet, is this what our prayer life would actually show that we believe? Does your prayer life, does, does my prayer life demonstrate faith that we truly believe we need to desperately seek the Lord? Or does it just show that in the big moments, the times where things get really tough, the times when we're hurting. Imagine trying to have a relationship with someone when you never talk to that person, where you never have a communication with that person. It's not going to end well. And so Paul understands the importance of prayer, and through his example we see four ways that Christ changes the way we pray. And the first way that we see he changes that is that we begin to pray faithfully. We pray faithfully, regularly, continually. Notice the verbs he uses here. Continue, be steadfast, be persistent, don't give up, be constant in your devotion. Pray without ceasing. Now, Now, he doesn't mean just continually do nothing other than pray. No, what he says is your life should be marked and characterized by this constant dependence upon the Lord. And that's expressed mostly through prayer. 
It means we live in a state of dependence and communion with God. Our prayer life should be marked by faithful prayer. That means we should have times of specific focused prayer, that we spend time talking to the Lord and listening to him. And we should also have constant prayer, praying all throughout the day as we run into different circumstances and situations. Lord, help me in this situation. Give me wisdom of how to speak. The majority of us need to grow in prayer. And while I wish I had a, a magic formula that I could give you that if you just do this, then you'll pray more, the reality is it's like every other spiritual discipline in your life, it takes a decision. It takes seeking a right motivation, remembering that we get to talk to the almighty God. That's what fuels us to take action. To start small and allow that to grow and build and ask God for a deeper love for him that will lead you into a deeper life of prayer. Ultimately, when I examine my own life, my lack of prayer often stems from my own excuses. I choose to fill my time with things that would bring me pleasure, would bring me enjoyment. But the truth is we need to carve out time, and and I need your help. We need each other's help to remind us of the significance and importance of prayer. And if you really want help, there are people around you, I assure you, in your gospel community that will come alongside you and encourage you in that. Don't wait. Do it today. Ask somebody today to help you grow in your dependence on prayer. The second way we're instructed to pray is we're to pray seriously. It's, it's not something that we have the option to do. It's not something that we do. It's vital to our lives. Notice what he says here, being watchful in prayer. The word watchful means alert, stay awake. It's this idea of keeping watch because the enemy may be climbing over that wall. We need to be watchful because Jesus will return and we're called to be alert and ready for that moment. And daily prayer reminds us of what is true and reminds us that this is Christ's kingdom, that he is coming again. It puts our focus where our focus needs to be. It reminds us that time is short and there should be an urgency to the way that we pray. So we pray as if our lives depend on it because they do. Do we pray for gospel opportunity with an eye on his return? Are you praying seriously? The third way Christ changes how we pray is we begin to pray with a heart of thanksgiving. So we pray thankfully. Yes, you need to be faithful and watchful, but you also need to be joyful in giving thanks because the Lord has been victorious. If anybody has a reason to give thanks, it's you and it's me. We've been saved. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed. Notice Paul is writing this from a jail cell, so it's not our circumstances that lead to our thanksgiving. It's the freedom of salvation that Christ has given us. That's the foundation of our thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not dependent upon our situation. It is dependent on our Savior. So when we pray, let's give thanks. It will change the way you start your day if you start your day by giving thanks to the Lord, by rejoicing and celebrating and delighting in what he's done for you. Remember, as disciples, we are always seeking to take our next steps. We want to grow in our dependence and our devotion and our delight in who Jesus is. How different would it be for you to walk around with thanksgiving and joy because of what Christ has done in you and how he's affected your life? He goes on to encourage them to pray for him in one specific way. In verse 3, at the same time, in other words, while you're praying in this way, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of him 
which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Isn't that amazing here? Paul doesn't ask for freedom from prison. Amid all of the suffering and the trials that he goes through, he asks for greater gospel opportunity. Greater gospel opportunity. This is the fourth, fourth way Jesus changes the way we pray. He calls us to pray expectantly. Even while Christ, or Paul is in prison, he desires to share the gospel, and he asks them to pray that God would open doors for the message. See, Paul understood that Christ is over all and in all things, and only he can give us the opportunities for the gospel because, guess what? He is the gospel. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, of course, we pray expectantly. And so the question is, who are you and I praying for? What name pops into your head in the morning? What do you say, Lord, save my friends, save my neighbors, and my coworkers? Do you, you pray throughout the day when you see them and when you run into them? Lord, would you, would you allow the word of God to penetrate their heart? Would you, would you convict them of their sin and that they would turn to you? Or do we think there's no hope? Do we write them off as this person is just too far gone? Well, we see here that witness starts with an expectant prayer for open doors. And perhaps the most remarkable awakening like this ever known in the United States was a, a great businessman's revival of 1857. This began in New York City with the prayers of a humble businessman turned missionary named Jeremiah Lanthier. And after being hired as a local missionary, God began to break his heart for the loss of those that he evangelized. And so he began to organize noon meetings for prayer. And at first, the attendance was very small, sometimes only a couple, in some occasions just himself. But he, as well as others, persisted in prayer. And a fire was kindled and that spread throughout the whole city and beyond. It moved to Philadelphia and then all over the land until no part of the country, there was no part of the country where prayer meetings weren't happening. This was a, a layperson's revival. This is people like you, people like me. They're not a hired pastor. God doesn't call only pastors to pray. He calls each and every one of us to pray. This was a prayer meeting for souls. And within a year, nearly a, over a million people were saved. Do you believe that God could accomplish that today if we would pray in that way? How different is this from the way that we pray? Lord, I, just, I pray that others would know the truth of the gospel. May God give us that kind of heart. If you want to grow in your witness, begin by praying that God would give you clarity with the gospel. Notice what he says next, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We pray that he'll make it clear and trust that the message Will, will prevail even in our weakest attempts, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 tells us. But we should do it in a grace-filled way. We don't need to hide the gospel. I'll ask you the question, do you feel comfortable and confident to share the gospel clearly? I've been part of several small groups where, as a way of getting to know each other better, we ask each person to share their testimony how the Lord has transformed their life. It's a low-pressure situation, but what's interesting is that even in that friendly environment, sometimes there's a lack of clarity on being able to speak the gospel and tell their story. Listen, I don't say that with any judgment. 
But we are called to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the hope and the reason that we have. And we do this with gentleness and respect. This changes the way we witness. We begin to live and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And simply put, this Christ changes the way we walk. Jesus changes the way we walk in three ways, and we begin first, we begin to walk wisely. He says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The word walk here is just a metaphor for, for how we live, how we behave, the pattern of our life. We walk in wisdom. Wisdom is applying God's truth to any specific circumstance. So if we know God's word, we can apply it in any moment, in any circumstance, in any situation, that we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The word outsider simply means those that are outside the faith, those that, that are not believers. And we're, we're not only to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we're to make the best of the time. Paul is saying, time is short, and the pri- priority that has been given is to make disciples. And everything else that the Lord has given to us, whether it's our families, whether it's our church, whether it's our work, whatever he's given us, all of these things are secondary to our primary calling to make disciples. Listen, one day the time will be passed when we will be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who does not know him. We can only do that this side of heaven. And we will have an eternity to worship the Lord together. But here and now, while we still have breath, we must make the best use of that time to be faithful witnesses for the Lord. And what does that look like? How do we walk like this? Well, he says we need to have a grace-filled witness. We need to walk graciously. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We're not called to compromise the truth, but we're called to speak the truth in love. How do we do that? Well, we need to look no further than Christ's example again, but here's where it actually begins. We need to actually love people. Witnessing is not about going out and to try to fill an obligation. Witnessing isn't about, I just heard a sermon on, on sharing the gospel, so I just need to go out and do that and be a witness. No, witnessing begins by having a heart for the lost and realizing that apart from Christ, they face an eternity of torment separated. So we need to pray every day, God, give me a heart for people. Grow a desire in me so deeply that my response will be the desire that people know Jesus. We're motivated by the love we've experienced from the Lord ourselves. Ben read it earlier, so we put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And God will give us the wisdom to walk in grace with the people that we share. Look, they might not agree with what, they, what we say, They may absolutely reject it, but at least they know that we truly love them. It's genuinely loving people and sharing the truth in a kind and gracious way and letting God deal with results. We can't affect a person's response, but we can affect the way we share the message in truth and love. Well, does graciousness characterize my speech? Does graciousness characterize your speech? Do people know that I love them even when I disagree with everything that they believe? 
Think about how that would stand out in this culture of confusion and division. Believers, we are, letting, are we letting our culture define how we respond? Are we allowing the grace of Jesus Christ to be evident in our speech so that people see and hear a difference? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, without love, I'm just a resounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. Whether in the workplace or in your neighborhood, the foundation of our witness must be love. So speak the truth in love. Let's speak it with love and grace and kindness. The third thing that Paul points out about our walk is that we need to walk winsomely. Look again at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now we all know that salt makes things taste better. And what Paul's saying here is when we speak with grace, when we speak with love, it should be seasoning to the way that we communicate, that it would point to the hope of Christ, that it would point to the, the grace of Christ, that it would point to the love of Christ. Yes, we must help people understand this, their sin and the consequences of that sin, but all must be seasoned with the love and grace and the forgiveness and the hope that's only found in Jesus Christ. Church, there is nothing that we can do about the offense of the gospel but there is something we can do about how we show it. And as I was thinking of examples of this, of how I, in my own personal life, have walked winsomely, oftentimes I think of examples of where I haven't done that. But I think sometimes those are the ones that we can relate to the most and we, we understand. And so the story that I tell now is an illustration from college. This is 25 years ago. So it's still with me 25 years later. A perfect example of how not to do this. Uh, I had a, a, f- a person on our floor that we were friends with, and we had a group of guys that we would hang out with. And this one particular uh, young man, was uh, he was raised Jewish. But he was not practicing. Um, and I just remember being so excited to witness to him. And I grabbed my Bible, and I had all my pages highlighted and went over there and did what I could to argue him into the kingdom of heaven. But the reality is, is I didn't do it winsomely. I didn't do it seasoned with salt, with a heart for him. Oh, I wish I could have that conversation again. I don't know if he's walking with the Lord. I have have no clue how the Lord might have used somebody else in that way. But to this day, 25 years later, it still bugs me. It still bothers me. See, we need to do everything that we can do so that the only thing that they're wrestling with is the gospel itself. And whether they choose to embrace it or reject it, they should be like, you know what? I don't like your message, but I like you because you reflect love in a loveless culture. You reflect hope in a hopeless culture. And you have thanksgiving when everything in this world around you rages. I don't get your message but I'm thankful that you're my friend. We need to do all that we can to present the gospel in a loving and compelling way, seasoned with salt. Look, this is where a cult is, was a culture where they were literally killing Christians. And Peter said, do it with gentleness and respect. They should see the hope in your life. Your life should be different. Share the truth and the reason for the hope that you ha- that's in you to those in your community. But I plead, do it with gentleness 
and respect. Do it with grace and in love. This is what should characterize our work and our witness. So let Jesus transform your work and your your witness as you walk in Christ throughout your community. These are the areas that I need to ask the Lord to grow me in. I would suggest that these are areas that maybe the Lord is working and growing in you right now. That it's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might be presented mature in Christ. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.